Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus was a hymn inspired by this next man you'll see in this little slide. That's Dudley, and I've understood by listening to a historian, Tang, uh, T-Y-N-G. He was a son of a Philadelphia Episcopal uh, priest, you know, minister, they're married, but Episcopal usually call their pastors priest. And uh, Dudley took over his father's church in Philadelphia, the largest church there, and I think around 1840-something. But around about 1856, as you know, the climate of the United States in the 1850s, he spoke out against slavery from the pulpit in Philadelphia, which is a northern state, you would think. And he was uh, basically uh, asked to resign. So he did and left this gigantic church with some other followers and began speaking at YMCA's. And as I was researching him, I mean, he, he popped up and I started looking at, you know, I go down the rabbit holes of YouTube and everything else. Um, some pastor joked that he was like the first men's conference speaker because he was going to these YMCA's and having these large group of men come out at lunch to have a Bible study. And in 1858, he's been out of the church two years. He comes to a YMCA, and I can't imagine a YMCA that large, but they had 5,000 people in attendance, 5,000 men. And as he stepped into the pulpit, anytime you step into the pulpit, it is a humbling, it's a scary, it has all these emotions. And he said, I tremble at the thought of standing before 5,000 men. He said, however... I would prefer my right arm to be severed at the torso if I should fail in preaching to you today. And that day, 1,000 men came to know Jesus. 1858, Philadelphia. And two weeks later, Dudley would be lying on his deathbed because he'd went into the countryside to see his first mechanical corn thrasher. Got too close. Those of you who worked around machinery know exactly what I'm talking about. He got the sleeve of his jacket. It whipped him around and did not take the arm off, the right arm that he had even preached about two weeks prior. And I know this sounds almost comical, but uh, it was eventually amputated. And his father heard him on his deathbed to say to his dad, don't forget what I've been doing. Tell them to stand up for Jesus. Stand up for Jesus. And... Because he had left his Episcopal church and knew other ministers in Philadelphia, George Duffield, who was a Presbyterian, um, turned that statement along with Ephesians 6, which is talking about the armor of God and stand firm, and wrote this hymn that we just sang based off of Dudley's deathbed statement. He turned it into a wonderful actually poem, and then it was later put into song. And most of us, how many of you knew that song? How many of you knew that story? Yeah, well, at least uh, something. But as I told you guys today, you'll never sing it again without thinking of the man who prophesied, if you will, uh, how he would die. But we don't think so much of the event. Think of what he was saying. Stand up for Jesus. And you would say, Cliff... <clears throat> Why would you use that today? We're talking about Lazarus, and there's no bodily dismemberment of Lazarus. But if you remember, and I will tell you if you haven't, uh, the uh, word resurrection in the original language means to stand up or to stand up again. 
And I think Lazarus, part two that we're here today, Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And he says, I have the power and I will show you the victory to stand up in the face of death and live the life here on this side of glory knowing that. So today, stand up, stand back up, if you will, with resurrection story as we go back to Lazarus' house. So, can't say all that without asking you to stand as I read from the 11th chapter. We pick back up on the story. And, and what I maybe failed to do, there's so much in here. When we began this uh, chapter 11, we're coming off of what happened in the latter part of chapter 10, where it's the Feast of Dedication, which was Hanukkah, which is a winter festival. And when we read into the 11th chapter, you'll see, not on the words that I will use today, but later on in the chapter, that it's right before the Passover. So Jesus has been away out of the public limelight for the period of, if you want to say, December to March or December to April. He's been off the grid in modern-day vernacular for about four months because they were ready to kill him in chapter 10. And now he's ready, being called by Martha, getting word from the sisters that his dear friend is dying. He comes and is ready to go. So we pick up at verse 11 from where we were last week. After he said this, he went... On to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. I think the pronouns are very important. Our, everybody's friend, but I am going back there to wake him up. I am going to wake him up. His disciples replied, if he's asleep or if he's sleeping, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Some of you immediately would say, well, that sounds pretty flippant, if you will. No, I think Jesus is saying, if I had been there and he didn't die, you wouldn't get to see the glory of the Lord because I'm going to bring a man back to life who's been dead. 16, then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. I can see him picking up his backpack, picking up his sword, whatever. All right, if he's going, I'm going. But yet we remember him as doubting Thomas and how sad that is. This is the man that the entire country of India still honors him because that's where most church history's uh, speakers would say that Thomas went to India. And at one point convinced the king to build a new palace for him, and the king gave him money. Have you heard this story? I'm looking at you. Mark Thomas, Mr. Thomas, you'll tell this one. He got all this money from the king, and he kept giving the money to the poor. And finally, the king one day said to Thomas, where is this temple? Where is this palace? Where is this place you're building me? He said, oh, it's in heaven, my dear king. <laughs> so what a guy. Thomas says, hey, let's go. We can die with him. Verse 17, and on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, I told you, if you are here last week, I believe truly that Jesus already knew. Both, he's both man and he's both God. He's fully divine as well as fully human. He knew that Lazarus already died. So he's taken him this journey to come back. And we talked about the fact where I thought he was versus Bethany, which is just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. 
On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been dead and been in the tomb four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Mary, to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brothers. Now, I have not watched The Chosen uh, at this point yet, and I don't know if this part is in this next. Some of you say, you know, are very uh, good on watching these. The How you could parse that out. Are these, is this family so wealthy that everybody knows them? Or is it so close to Jerusalem because everybody's coming through there on their pilgrimage? Uh, people are getting ready to celebrate the Passover. But the word is going back and forth, back and forth. And obviously they had some prominence. They were loved by many. Um, but there they are, verse 20. When Martha hears that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. So the word has preceded Jesus even to get to the home of Lazarus. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I don't know what tone. I've often said she shouted that. She was angry. But yet, if you read the rest of it, maybe it wasn't. She's just, it's a statement of faith. Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Because in verse 22, she says, but I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. So she's basically saying, you can do all things. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That is the, the vein of Judaism of the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. And she is claiming that same statement of belief that there is a life after death. Jesus says to her, he explains it to her even better. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. So he explains himself. He says all this and then he says, do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And there we'll end. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these powerful words and the application that it speaks to us as Christians. There's not one person here today, unless they're so young they have not yet experienced it, that has not lost a loved one. We know the grief and the pain and sorrow of death. Paul writes, the wages of sin is death. But through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, we know that there's more to come. That there will be a life after this physical life. And as Jesus explains to Martha, even this life right here can be even more wonderful if we truly believe that you are the resurrection and the life. So speak to us this day. Let us stand up for you once again, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please, you can be seated. I know. Thank you. That's a long time. The same guy that was writing that article, he said, I can remember as a young person, a preacher would always have us stand up when they read the scripture. And I always thought, even as a young person, here we go again. Now, I'm, that's the way I read it. I don't know how you intended it. He said, but actually, that was explaining and teaching me worship, even as a young person. To have reverence for God's word. Stand up. To listen to him. To what he's got to say to us today. Uh, while stationed at Kirtland Air Force Base, uh, I think that's uh, in the Cliff Perry uh, military history book, 1996 to 98, the twins were born 
uh, in uh, New Mexico. I was a duty chaplain one week, and the phone call comes in from the local funeral home and says, hey, we have a veteran, and we need a chaplain, and because, you know, that's how they got to me. You're the duty chaplain this week. Uh, you need to go to Santa Fe uh, to the National Cemetery. And those of you who know New Mexico, Albuquerque to Santa Fe, it's about 70 miles. I mean, when everybody came to visit us in Albuquerque, we immediately took them to Santa Fe. It was like, let's go, let's go up there. It's nicer up there. And then you, if you really want to go further, you go to Taos and something like that. You know, if you knew how to ski, which we didn't, you could have done that even all somewhere along the way. But um, the, the guy, I remember the director who did it, we had, uh, who was, could call me, we had done two or three funerals together. Uh, he always wanted to, there was a place that had blue tortilla chips. And, you know, those of you who like Mexican food, New Mexican food is different than Tex-Mex. It's a totally different thing. But they had, it was like the blue tortilla chip place in Santa Fe. He said, I'll take you out to eat afterwards. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, but, I mean, I was going to go anyway. Uh, I was supposed to go, so I was going to go. And we go, and, and uh, we get there to the graveside, and we wait. And we wait. And we wait. Because this is the graveside only, not one at the funeral home, then you go. And we wait. And we wait. And I, I don't know, you know, when you wait, it seems like it's an eternity. But for him, the, the, the guy who was getting paid to be there, I, I was a part of my military service. I get a paycheck all the time. I, I get paid whether I'm there or whether I'm in the base. We waited 90 minutes. And it's a little different Fort Sam. For, Fort Sam, you got a, like a 40-minute set time. And there's another one. Uh, the Santa Fe one was uh, not nearly as busy. But after about 90 minutes, he said, Chaplain, it's all yours. So he stood there, and the guys who were going to put the man down into the, uh, the hole uh, are beside us. And uh, I had a little funeral message for those guys, those workers, those cemetery workers. So <clears throat> they put him down, and as we are driving out, I mean, we're done. I mean, I didn't speak long, but as we are leaving, no joke, two Cadillacs come flying in. I mean, they are, you know, like they are racing from the police and pull in. And I, and I told him, I said, I bet that's the family. I bet that's the family. He just kept on driving. He said, they weren't here. It's 90 minutes past the time. The people at the cemetery will show them where they laid him. And I thought, wow, man, that's pretty cold. Let me, let, let me get out and, you know, and go talk to him. But I didn't, and, you know, should have good what I should have done. But that was 90 minutes late. Jesus was four days late at this point. So what was the climate right there for Mary and Martha as they waited? In Jewish tradition at that time, and those of you who know anyone that's Jewish, and it's a practicing Jew, uh, the, upon death, they typically are buried, if they can, before sunset. In, in Jewish tradition, the spirit hovers over the body for three days. This guy has been dead four. It's springtime. It's not winter. It's not frozen. It is, it is uh, a tough thing at that point. And he's coming, and you'll read later on in the next week, that they say, Jesus, he probably stinks by now. But he's definitely dead. And in walks Jesus. Well, actually, he walks into the area because Martha comes out. And uh, some of you say, well, why didn't Mary come? Do you know Luke 10? Where Mary and Martha are entertaining Jesus? What does Martha say to Jesus? Come on, get out here and help me. I'm wondering, and I know this is all speculation, but it's how Cliff, you know, in his strange biblical warped mind... Have you ever had some, well, you ever lost somebody, everybody comes to your house, right? And sometimes you just want to get out. 
And maybe it's, turn, it's Mary's turn to watch the kitchen and serve the, you know, the coffee and, 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 and be entertaining hosts. She heard Jesus was coming. I got to get out of there. I want to go talk to him. Besides that, I got, I got a bone to pick with him. You know, if you'd only been here, this wouldn't have been this way. So she goes, and Mary is left behind, and we read, and I want to read it to you one more time. I'd probably burn it in your ears. I am the resurrection and the life, verse 25. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Well, that's our first point. We're hanging our hat on these two words, resurrection and life. Resurrection. Believers have life after death. That ought to get an amen. You ought to bet you. Oswald Chambers, most of you know him from his classic work, My Utmost for His Highest. If you ever had a devotional book, that's one of the most famous that's ever been written, I think. Um, he calls this intimate theology or intimate faith. When death comes and you know as a believer that that's not the end, how can you get from that pain and sorrow to the joy and happiness of knowing this is not the end. Only faith in Jesus can overcome pain, grief, and loss of death. I don't know how many times I've read 1 Corinthians 15, 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Because Christ Jesus has overcome the grave. He's overcome death. But yet, as any person with eyes could see, at every gravesite I've ever been, and I read that, there are grieving people standing there. So, as Chambers would say, it's applying that faith, making it intimate, making it believable, understanding that even in my grief and my suffering and in my tears, there's going to be life. Author and theologian James, James Boyce, Boyce uh, points out, I think he was a part of uh, Bible Fellowship for a long time. He had the hour on the radio, the Bible hour. Um, he says, notice that Jesus didn't ask Martha, now doesn't that make you feel better when he says, I'm the resurrection and the life? He doesn't say, does that make you feel better? He says, do you believe? Wow. Right in your face. Resurrection is one of the, it is perhaps the central teaching of the Christian faith. Short of God sending his son, the fully man, the fully God, child Jesus for us. Resurrection is a pivotal point for us in our faith. We must believe. And that the rising of the dead, that word resurrection, meaning stand up, I can remember uh, Mike uh, Garcia, one of the songs he liked to sing was Anastasia, and I can't even pronounce it. And how many people, when that would be the title, would come up there and say, what does that mean? And I have to look it up again until I finally learned it. That's the Greek word for resurrection, to rise again, to stand up again, to get up from the grave. The Bible teaches us that Jesus, the Son of God, was raised from the dead. He stood up again from the grave after dying for our sins. Consider this simple personal application. I know some of you have been sick. I got a, my wife had a cough for about three weeks. Wasn't really anything beyond that. And I doubt that Debbie Horn is here. She may be watching on, online. I know Cliff is in the hospital. There, you know, there are three cliffs in our church now. Did you know that? There, that is really crazy. Three cliffs. 
Uh, actually, two Cliftons and a Clifford. But uh, Cliff Hamilton is in the hospital. He got sick Wednesday night during refuel, and they're running one more test on him. Hopefully, if he passed that, he'd get to come home. Uh, we keep joking that because we talk cars. He said, you got the right jumper cables? And then I texted back. I said, what vote system are you on? He goes, I don't know. I said, well, as old as you are, you're probably a six-volt system with a generator, no alternator. He said, man, as old as I am, it's a key and a string. <laughs> Some of you old enough to know what I'm talking about. In any event, uh, Debbie called me this week, and she said, how long did Brenda cough? She said, I'm coughing all the time, and I'm tired of it. And if you've been like that, maybe you've been to the point you can't smell, you can't taste, you can't breathe, and when you finally stop coughing, when you finally break the fever, when you finally can smell and enjoy food and taste it again, you have just got a taste of the word resurrection. Going from death to life, to stand up again. And connected so deeply to resurrection is the idea of forgiveness. Because without the resurrection, there would be no forgiveness. And I wonder sometimes, it, is there, are there things that we are carrying with us and it's, it's diminishing the way we look and believe and how we proclaim the resurrection because we're still carrying some baggage of our own sins in our life. I think it's Mark Twain who said that the human animal is the only animal that blushes. You ever heard that? That's, you know, you, and he said, of course, it's the only, human, the only animal that should blush. Because there are things we have all done in our lives that if we aired them up on a Sunday slide, we would be blushing. One psychologist I read this week, he said that if I could get my patients to be assured that they are forgiven, I would lose half of my clientele. Many of us carry burdens that we don't have to if we have placed our faith in Christ Jesus, for he does forgive us. The word resurrection, the concept resurrection, believing as Jesus asked Mary, do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe I am the resurrection? If you believe that, that gives the sinner the power to stand in a worship service like this or to stand on the street corner and say, I have been forgiven. I am redeemed. I know that Jesus is my savior and I will live after death. Resurrection. Second word. Life. Believers never die. Charles Spurgeon, who is that great Baptist preacher from London in the late 1800s. I've told you this before. I, 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 I've read his sermons. I have some of his sermons. I can, on occasion, pull out one of his stories. Because he's just, he's, he's too good for me to even try to be like uh, but I did go to the place where he was baptized when I was stationed in England. And a lady let us come to the little stone that says here, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, was baptized. And she had a little book that I had to log, log my name in because she liked to record all the Americans that came out to visit that little stone. Um, he tells the story of a French couple, a poor French couple, that is entertaining a traveler. You know, this is in the 1800s. And the traveler, as he's sitting there, you know, appreciating having a place to stay. And I mean, people used to be far more hospitable. You might understand and relate. If you're old enough, you know what that was like that would entertain a guest that you didn't even know because they needed a place to stay. And the traveler notices that on the wall, they have framed a 1,000 Swiss franc note. 
100 francs at the time was about a month's salary. So you can think what you make and you times it by 10. That's how much it's worth. Because each one of us have different amounts in here, but just make it what it's worth to you. 10 times what you make every month. And he said to them, he says, that, that's a marvelous frame piece you have there. Tell me the history. And they said, oh, there was a soldier here once that we cared for. And as he was dying, he gave us this. And we liked the picture of the man so much on it, we framed it. And Spurgeon said they had no idea of the wealth that they had framed and was simply hanging on the wall. If they'd merely cashed it, if they'd merely gone to the bank somewhere, they would have been able to feed people for years on that 10 months worth of salary. And he makes the connection that you and I, if we believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, we have been given this magnificent wealth. Think of the words you can pull out of the Bible. First Peter, we read that we are a royal priesthood. We are heirs of God. We have been chosen. You are a child of God, the one who created and made the world. You have this wonderful life that you can live. But yet, so many times, we choose to hang that knowledge on the wall like a piece of art. We take these books that are God's holy word and we have to go searching for them when it comes time to go to church on Sunday. No one say amen on that. Jesus has given each of us a fortune. We are his royal heirs, the children of God. Do you believe? Stand with me, please, we pray. Fathers, we have a time of invitation before we share this wonderful meal that reminds us of the sacrifice that was made for each of us. I pray if there's someone here who has not lived for this knowledge, this redemption, this glorious event that your son came, died for us, and overcame the grave. If we've not placed our faith in him, let this be the moment in which they profess their faith in Jesus. Father, we love you. If there's someone here who's hung their treasure on the wall too long and it's time to start spending it, it's time to start investing in others, it's time to feed the hungry with the knowledge of Jesus. Help us to take it off the wall and, and start living it. Whatever decision there is, Lord, maybe there's somebody who just needs to come here and pray before we share the communion time together. Let your Holy Spirit move in our midst, and I ask it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.